Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret. It's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. In discussions of free speech, why are we not talking about the 14th Amendment? Today, I'm joined by Professor Tanya Hernandez, Professor of Law at Fordham University. Professor Hernandez is an expert in discrimination, Latin America and Latin American law, employment, critical race theory, and other areas. She's the author of a wide range of essays and articles and a forthcoming book called Multiracials and Civil Rights, Mixed Race Stories of Discrimination. Today, she's going to join me to talk about the necessity of discussing the First Amendment and the 14th in the same breath, how the understanding of freedom of expression in the First Amendment is incomplete without raising the guarantee of equality, and about the fallacious soapbox theory of free speech. I'm very excited to welcome you today. So I'm today I'm speaking on the podcast with Tanya Hernandez, who is uh, Archibald R. Professor of Law at Fordham University School of Law. So thank you, Tanya, for making time today to speak with me about free speech. You've written on free speech in the global context. You've published and been researching hate speech, and especially in Latin America and in the global context, and the way people regulate or approach speech. And which is very exciting, you have a book coming out on multiracials and civil rights with NYU Press this summer in August, I think, right? It's I've pre-ordered pre it, so I'm very excited <laughs> about the kind of multiracial identities in our legal context in the U.S. and how people are treated and the equality principles and guarantees who don't fit into traditional conventional categories of racial identities. So we're excited about this book with NYU Press. But I wanted to start out by asking you, We've seen so many campus controversies around speech in the last two or three years. And whether you could give me a bit of a sense how you've started to think about them. And you've written really interesting and important things, I think, about the link between the speech controversies and other constitutional principles, especially equality guarantees. I'd be delighted to. Well, the main thing that always strikes me when I, as a university professor, observe the college campus free speech debates and, and see them elsewhere, and since it's a sort of a national and type of problem, uh, is that we talk about the free speech context as if only the First Amendment were our only guiding principle. And, and indeed, even when we talk about the First Amendment, we talk about it in a very absolute way that is actually contrary to <laughs> its norms, the, the literal <laughs> articulation of it. You know, so not to get too heavy into law, but just for a little bit of a backdrop, you know, the First Amendment is simply a bar on the federal government from censoring its citizens. You know, so the language is all about Congress not being able to make any laws that abridge the freedom of speech. So that immediately sort of centers for us what free speech is about from a legal perspective. It's about making sure that citizens have a right to speak and not be curtailed by the federal government right. in ways that harm them in their exercise of democracy. But that's and the, not our point. And the idea is sort of to allow citizens to criticize the government. The intent exactly. was that was protected, that they wouldn't be 
fearful of being punished for criticizing a government official. So the idea is really democracy from the bottom up, that it gives American citizens the right to criticize their own government. and hold Exactly. The, yeah. Exactly. And I'm glad that you helped me sort of better situate this for our listeners in the ways in which it's about the conversation between the citizen and the state, sort of right? the First Amendment is organized. But even if we were to say, all right, well, that's all well and good, but this helps inform the way in which all of us with regards to other institutions should be treated as well. And with respect to one another, that if it's even not legally mandated, it certainly should inform our practices with one another. Okay, let's take that on for a moment. Right. You know, even that would be too short-sighted a analysis of how to further democracy, because it would look at the First Amendment as if it were the only amendment in our Constitution. Interesting. So let's stay with that for a moment. So let's say if the first assumption we make that free speech should be the kind of protection that no one can restrict anybody else, if we take out the government now and just say as a principle, they say, I cannot restrict what you say, and you cannot restrict what I say. So we are kind of equal partners in this, presumably. And just like the government cannot tell me that I cannot criticize anybody, if I want to criticize what you're doing, you shouldn't be allowed to tell me you can't speak anymore. So that's that will be the principle. And you're saying that isn't enough to make for a democratic society where everybody participates. So we're missing something then. Most definitely, most definitely. Because what such a kind of narrative of what the our storytelling about the First Amendment would be doing is situating democracy as just all of us just shouting at one another as if that's what's furthering right. any kind of deliberative thinking, growth, and mutual understanding of one another across differing perspectives. It doesn't work on a playground, and it certainly doesn't work in our political sphere. So can I ask something about that interesting? So it's not just that we're all shouting to be heard and speak louder or more forcefully or have a better argument, because democracy has another principle. It's actually meant to have people live together peacefully. You say sometimes Twitter becomes that, people just shouting at each other, but that is not democracy necessarily. You're saying it's actually meant for people to coexist. So there's a kind of, yeah. For us to coexist and for us to have sort of deliberation. So there's space for contemplation, for mutual reconsideration of one another's perspectives in having had this mutual exchange. But that means that the venue and the rules of the game have to be carefully attended to in order for for conversation to further these public democratic goals. Yeah. And can and, you say something about the rules of the game? What could they be? Or Because if the First Amendment leaves them pretty open, it just says speech should kind of happen. And you're saying, well, there have to be some rules, otherwise just someone will be loud or dominant and just keep on speaking. That doesn't mean what the, what the amendment actually means. There is something deliberative and there's a process and it leads to some better outcome. Right. One other guiding principle that we have is, you know, through the 14th Amendment, right? You know, the 14th Amendment is all about not subordinating one another based on race. Just to give me as a kind of layperson. So the First Amendment is ratified in 1791 and the 14th Amendment is ratified in 1865, correct? Right? Well, that is correct. Well, actually, we've got a big anniversary coming up this year. So the ratification is July 9th, 1868. Oh, okay. 1868. Uh, so, okay. Yeah. We've got the war ending in 65, but we don't right. get this thing ratified. Okay. 
<laughs> and so we've got a 150 year you know uh, celebration going on this year okay you're um, the first person to invite me to this anniversary party i'm really grateful i did not know <laughs> i did not know I mean, well, yeah. it may be that my colleagues and i at Porter may be some of the only people actually talking about celebrating it but yes it is worth celebrating yeah so yes 150 years and what the 14th amendment is sort of literally focused on is not denying any person the equal protection of laws you know, it's, it comes out of our racial history of the Civil War, but it is written in a race-neutral manner because it's about all of us having equality vis-a-vis -vis one another, right? And for the federal government to not be part of denigrating, but also be part of the sort of mutual flourishing in okay. as much as that if neither, if none of us are denied equal protection of laws that allows each of us, you know, to pursue our own I mean, like, it's the best way to say to you know, our own political path. Right. Well. What own political path, what John Stuart Mill would call our form of life. He said mm -hmm. you pursue a form of life. So we all live our different lives, very different, very distinctive in America. But the government, that's interesting, you just said, guarantees that everybody has the equal right and equal opportunity to live their life according to how they think it's the best way to live without infringing on anybody else and without being diminished in this capacity. Exactly, exactly. So if we put the First Amendment focused on a pursuit of democracy, right, in conversation with the 14th Amendment, uh, wanting to make sure that each of us have equal protection of laws, then what we have there is sort of a built-in way to better understand these debates about where the line between free speech and hate speech should be drawn. Okay. So in 1791, we have the First Amendment. It is not granted, it doesn't grant any rights to many Americans, right? We know yes. this. And so it takes a while for women and, you know, non-white Americans to get this. But we have this, the First Amendment, and then the 14th Amendment, let's say, comes along, as you say, in 1868. Is it immediately evident and clear in the jurisprudence that now the 14th Amendment shapes how we operate and how we think about the First Amendment? Well, interestingly enough, what we do have in the 1950s, 1940s, is an ability on the part of citizens to file claims of, of, of group defamation. Right? Oftentimes when we talk about the free speech being absolute in the United States, it erases this earlier history of an understanding that groups should be able to say, uh, no, you know, it's not right that my yeah. entire ethnic origin is being denigrated. This harms not just me as an individual, but this type of denigrating speech harms my entire group. Interesting. Right? So this is in the 1940s and 50s? Exactly. So, so on the global stage, we're witnessing and people are living through the horrors of the Second World War and the Holocaust and group libel on a massive state scale. And so in America, there's a sense that people can say, you cannot defame me as a member of a particular group. Exactly. And we only shift away from the idea of groups having these rights in a more open fashion after the 1960s. You, know, you would think, oh, this is sort of odd, 1964, the uh, Civil Rights Act of the United States is we're sort of recommitting ourselves after the reconstruction of the Civil War to 
trying to make substantive our commitments to equality and racial equality. But the Supreme Court sort of backs away from group defamation and with sort of very famous case in 1969 says that the government's not allowed to punish what it calls inflammatory speech unless there's an intent to incite likely lawless action. Right? Okay. So there is now a line drawn that is hard for sort of anyone to ever actually reach uh, to be able to say that there is uh, a way that one, I can prove to you that the actual subjective intent of the speaker is, and that that intent is to incite lawless action. That's right. a heavy burden to bring. So in essence, we walk away as a nation state from really truly dealing with hate speech on a group level. So interesting. So to just look at this for a moment again. So in the 1950s, the court is willing to consider group libel or incitement on a group basis, basically racist speech targeted at individual groups, which are African-American or Jews, Latinos, whatever it is. And the court is willing to look at it, has a case, and then never really revisits the case, the Boharnes case, which it doesn't go back to. And then in the 60s, when the country is actually going through the civil rights movement and a, a struggle and fight for equality, the court puts up a much higher bar and says, unless it is direct incitement, we really cannot regulate kind of group libel or what we would today probably call racist speech, I guess. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So interesting. So there's a kind of movement. And do you have any sense, not why that is, but so what does that do actually to our understanding as a culture to what, what hate speech is? Because then we can get to sort of your work on what hate speech actually is or whether we can define it or is it just a matter of opinion? Well, you know, that's interesting. There's a lot of interesting perspectives about sort of why the U.S. pivots in a different direction from the rest really of, of the globe. You know, other countries that have dealt with issues of hate speech are more open-ended about allowing people to bring claims as opposed to the U.S., which is very narrowly focused on this idea of incitement to violence as being the boundary line theories are that in the 1960s, when we have the Civil Rights Act and all this activism going on, that there might be a concern that racists need a way to be able to vent right. <laughs> their views. I mean, you know, that if we allow them to speak a lot of their garbage, um, that right. it'll just come out of the mouth and it won't right. come out in actual racist actions. Oh, right? really? Interesting. Yes. Sometimes you'll see in commentary, like, you know, people need to be able to vent. Um, because but you know what's, then they won't necessarily act on it. It stays just a matter of hateful like language, a, but they won't mm -hmm. do anything. And Like a racial safety valve, if you will. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> people get to blow off some steam. They get to say some expletives that are racially offensive and that this will be helpful in then getting it out of people's systems. And okay. they won't act on their racist perspectives, right? That, that that's one right. view right. as to what's going on here. But you know what, what is so fascinating, though, is that when people who are discourse analysts get involved, even when people who are economists get involved and do some of their economic modeling, what you find is that the weight of the analysis actually cuts against that whole idea about venting. That is to say that when people speak a lot in hateful manners, that what it does is it builds up, it gins up a system of racism. 
interesting. And it's not just a vent. It's not just a letting off of steam. It's actually building the steam engine. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so it encourages or recruits or excites people in a way to say we can participate in this. Interesting. So it's not the safety valve idea doesn't really, it's not shown to be correct in studies, you're saying. Exactly. Yes. I mean, what I found particularly fascinating was this study that was done by a group of economists where what they did is they did a, a modeling where they analyzed the ways in which if you Increase the cost of engaging in hate speech, meaning you regulate it, put fines on it, et cetera, and or add a criminal right, uh, prohibitions on right. it, right? So that it costs you more in some way, either jail time or, <laughs> right. or financially. That what that does is it actually deters hate crime rather oh. than increase the rate of hate crime. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So I thought that was fascinating. And it's, it's well in line with the work of people who talk about the ways in which, you know, daily discrimination has its own set of justifications. And these sets of justifications, reasons, uh, they have to be acquired, reproduced, legitimated. And how do you get taught things? People have to teach them to you. And some of the highest rates of implicit and explicit bias, uh, social psychologists have found, are from passive exposure to racial messages. So, and so so it's not just like, oh, mommy taught me X, Y, and Z, right? It's that I live in the world and I listen to the radio and I watch television. And so I get all kinds of cultural messages about what's valued and not valued in our society. So this argument, the safety valve, it's interesting that studies don't show that to be true. There's a second argument that to put racism out there is important, otherwise it's driven underground, it's secretive, and this way sunlight is the best disinfectant, reason will triumph, and we will be able to feed all this hate speech and this hateful language with more, better arguments. That's the other sort of justification for letting letting them go off, let people be hateful, but we can just counter that with much more speech and provide better arguments. What do you think of that kind of justification for really leaving hate speech totally unregulated? Well, I mean, what it leaves unaccounted are several things. First, it acts as if the ongoing propagation of the hate speech itself has no harms. You know, while we're letting people doing their venting, nothing bad is actually happening. And so the problem is, is that what we see, you know, well, we've got our World War II. (laughs) Right. Uh, We have... The Bosnian genocide. We've got the Rwandan genocide. Right. right. So we've got lots of documentary evidence that shows us that the venting, the ginning up of racial messages actually facilitates the genocide of people based on those racial messages. You know, people just don't wake up and decide, I think I'm going to hate the Tutsis in Rwanda. Right. And start, you know, the people who were witnesses to the genocide talked all about the, you know, you can see it in their, in the oral histories of all of this, how on the radio, there were tons of these messages about racial hate. And the encouraging of the racial violence right before it actually happened. You know, it wasn't something that was just, how shall we say, correlated, but there was no causation. Right, <laughs> um, right. I mean, the people who lived it are pretty clear that there so, was causation. Let me ask you kind of – it's a difficult question. So mm. if this is sort of – what you're saying seems pretty obvious, and there's a way in which – I grew up in Germany where 
there's some regulation of hate speech because people fear that if you don't regulate it, it'll lead to the most terrible things, including genocide. In the United States, people think if you do regulate speech, it will lead straight to totalitarianism. <laughs> there's a strange kind of reversal of the argument. They're saying, oh, if we restrict anything, that soon everything will be forbidden. We'll live under dictatorship. So, But why do you think in America there isn't an awareness that what you just said, that to be surrounded by hate speech, to have that message every day that you are learning to think in a certain way, that especially kids could be indoctrinated or taught how to think of other people. Sort of what's the resistance to this realization, or is, there, is it just there are different studies? Or to get to where we are from the late 60s, as you said, when the court really becomes very reluctant to regulate or consider hate speech to today. I think part of what we see happening here is that the national self-image right, is one of we fought our racial battles, right? We had our civil war, we had our civil rights movement, and now we are the leaders right, as far as the path to equality. We have evolved civil rights laws. We go out into the world and try to model to the world the best way to move forward. Right? You know, we, we're not as bad as South Africa. We moved beyond Jim Crow segregation long before they did. Oh, and so there's this image like, you know, yeah, we were bad, but now we're great. Interesting. Um. <laughs> yes. I haven't thought about it this way, right, in the global context that America could say we've, we've solved these issues. Exactly. We had a black president. Where's yours? You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, we haven't had a woman president. Okay, there's hey. one more to go, right? <laughs> well, th this is the thing about narrative and myth-making. Right? It, right. it somewhat falls apart when you push a little right. bit further. Right, But that's interesting. That's an important self-understanding of America. Do you think that's because to acknowledge that we haven't really made that much progress or there's still many members of our society who haven't really benefited from this and this narrative is not quite true? Is that too complicated a story or is it too negative a story? It's Well, I would be less present if there's been no progress. There definitely has been progress. But to act as if we don't have to be vigilant and concerned about the ability to have all our progress sort of just slide away, right, would be mistaken. I mean, and part of, I think, of this myth-making is also a myth-making about what free speech is, right? There's this notion of I stand on a soapbox or my Twitter account, and I get to say whatever it is I want, and that's free speech. Right? But right. that is not exactly free speech if we think about it from the perspective of the First Amendment, which is about, you know, the pursuit of a rich dynamic democracy, right? Following way, and the, the, the image of each individual getting on their soapbox or their, or their Twitter account, what it misses is the role of power and hierarchy. Me blabbing away on Twitter is not quite the same thing, right, as the president of the United States doing right. it, right? right? There's a power differential and an access issue to the public audience and the ability to uh, try to be persuasive that is missing, each of us shouting at each other is not free speech in the democratic perspective of things. Interesting. Yeah. So how does the consideration of the 14th Amendment, the equality guarantees, shape then a, a different, I think what you would say, maybe a more proper understanding of the First Amendment? Well, yes, yes. 
I mean, if we then put the 14th Amendment in conversation with the First Amendment, what we then see is sort of a greater nuance about what facilitates a true democracy. We could look at some of the thoughts of people who've spent a lot of time analyzing these things, of critical race theorists who have been long concerned about these issues of free speech not being complicit in the propagation of racism in our society. And in particular, one person I immediately think of is Mari Matsuda, one of the many critical race theorists who have been thinking about these issues of free speech. And she says, you know, College campuses could like organize themselves around sort of three central themes, right? I mean, they could ask whether or not there's a message that is one of racial inferiority, right? Not all things that are that make us uncomfortable or feel like insults are necessarily problematic from a hate speech or a democracy perspective. Right? Right. You know, some people can be offensive, but it's not necessarily about racial inferiority. Okay, and that isn't so difficult to attend to. I and mean, people think, oh, it's so hard to know what's just offensive and what's just hate speech. Right. Well, well, if we're talking about some people being innately inferior, right? I don't think that's so hard to figure out. Right. <laughs> right? And, and, uh, <laughs> and we, have a hist- we have a history, actually, in many countries where this is part of a central racist kind of ideology. So this is the first criteria if people are considered and labeled as innately inferior as a group. That's, that would be Mary Matsuda's first criteria, right? Then Exactly, right? And then her second criteria is to look at whether the message is actually directed at a historically oppressed group, right? Because there's always this concern, oh, well, what if someone who's in the oppressed group is upset, right, about the subordination, and so they speak back and right. they say something against the elite that is in power? Isn't right. that hate speech too? Right. Well, no, because of the power differential. Oh, right? interesting. It, interesting. You, you know, how is it that someone who is beleaguered, belittled, and has no power saying something at all, you know, they're too far below you in many respects to have their words harming you or having their words be taken to put into action okay. to harm you. Right. So it's important to look at the realities of what the power structures are in our society. And to ask you a follow-up, would you think that colleges would be capable of making those assessments? <laughs> I mean, we would hope so, I think. But would you think that colleges would be able to understand so that speech that denigrates a group as inherently inferior? Now, the second criteria, speech that targets a group that is in a different power situation from a dominant group. That's what sort of right. a minoritized group or a group that has been historically disadvantaged. You think people would be capable of doing what you just did, a kind of common sense analysis and say, attacking one group is different from attacking the, an elite group? Well, I mean, I would hope that a college campus would be the best place to have this analysis happen <laughs> right. um, in, in the sense that we've got, you know, great minds right. with lots of information, <laughs> right. historical backdrops with, with which to, you know, put this in forth. I mean, certainly it would help if the college campus authorities are ones that are truly diverse, right? You know, right. It's hard to have these kinds of assessments going on amongst people who all have a similar background and a similar set of experiences because it's hard to see beyond our own experience. Yeah. I also think another aspect is if there's a dimension of people become defensive if they are sort of 
group together saying you belong in an elite group. People have a hard time stepping out of their position. So the diversity is also to just put different viewpoints into conversation and to get over people being defensive or defending something that's not even quite theirs. Sort of, I think that would that would open up the conversation. Then Mary Matsuda has a third criteria. You said to decide. Yes, her yeah, her third and final criteria is that as she, looking at whether the message itself is persecutory, hateful, degrading. Right. So this idea that it's not just oh, there's some negative messaging going on about a particular group. It's about trying to situate that group as a problematic group. Right? So that the hate speech is one in which there is a sort of action going on with these words, right? an, an action to subjugate and subordinate by putting people in a particular place okay. in the public order. So let me ask you a kind of, you know, I don't really think it's useful to go through hypotheticals, but mm -hmm. if someone says a certain group is much more prone to certain types of criminal behavior, so, you know, people with green hair or something are most likely to commit such crimes and therefore they should be punished. Would that fall into these criteria? The first one, it says people are inherently inferior. Secondly, they belong to a historically persecuted group. And the third criteria, remind me what the third one was. It's, that it's, it's persecutory, persecutory, hateful, degrading. Right. Yeah. So when someone comes to campus and says this group of people more likely to shoplift or do whatever and therefore they should be punished or shouldn't be allowed to come into the mall. Right, right. Would, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at that and as I see it, it is one about racial inferiority, right? It, it's not a conversation of, oh, there are communities of people without access without means who, because of their context, we see an empirical predisposition in the records, criminal arrest rates, or the arrested at greater criminal rates. Right? Meaning, if what we have is a message about how innately this group of people right. are criminals, then yes, it does fit, in my view, the Mari Matsuda yeah. you know, three-part analysis. If what you said instead have is a more nuanced which will be an uncomfortable message, right? And so regulating hate speech is not about taking discomfort out of our public conversation. Right. right. So I'd like to underscore that point. It is mm -hmm. not about discomfort or feeling offended. It is about actually the three criteria you used. It's about, you know, persecutory speech that isolates groups which have been historically disadvantaged and that are identified as presumably inherently inferior. Not right. about offense, not about feelings, although many of the debates right now on college campuses, when you read the newspapers or watch the news, they seem to always say, oh, these oversensitive students, they're upset, they can't handle it, they, they, can't, they have to be able to take the real world, and they're just, their feelings are too strong. Well, you know, it's interesting because, I mean, I do think there's a role for having a conversation about what the students are talking about as far as safe spaces are concerned. Right. You know, for instance, when if we take it just for a moment outside of the race context and we look at the gender dynamic that goes on, you know, the prevalence of women who have been sexually assaulted is really quite high. 
and in law school classes and criminal law back in my day, <laughs> many years ago, yeah. um, there was a tendency to have criminal law classes do a lot of focus on rape, right? You know, it seemed like every example was about a rape example, as if there were no other crimes that we could be talking about to okay. learn about the contours of criminal law, right? Okay. Um, and, you know, I certainly would have appreciated having my law professors at the time educated about this idea of some sense of safety in an educational context. Like, meaning, yeah, it's not that we shouldn't talk about rape ever, but can we have a little attention paid to the ways in which that can really set off a whole set of almost like a post-traumatic stress syndrome of the vast numbers of women, and you know, if you think one out of three, that's a big part of the classroom, right? Um, right. Uh, that has been, in some respects, sexually assaulted. Let alone the higher numbers that have been exposed to sort of people in their families with these stories. So that you know, it's not just your own individual experience, but it's also sort of the culture of what it means to be female in a sort of sexually violent world. I don't think that's misplaced to have that conversation about sort of concern about safety in the role of education. But I do think that it is taking up too much of the discourse about hate speech in ways I think that allows those who oppose any form of regulation to be overly critical about what those students are concerned about. Because you're proposing a pretty narrow set of criteria that would really only cover some instances of speech and not a lot of other things, trigger warning, safe spaces, all this other material that gets thrown into this debate. So because you've looked at this in the global context and you've looked at the different kind of speech regulations in, in legislative models. Do you think universities would be willing and interested to consider these criteria that Professor Matsuda has proposed and that you're now kind of presenting in new ways? Well, you know, what's interesting to me is that when I've spoken with various university officials in different contexts, they have expressed to me an interest in trying to find ways to navigate this. Right? They don't want their universities being held captive to racist messaging at the same time that they do want to further a, a rich public discourse. I know the Students have sometimes a perspective that you know their enemy <laughs> um, are, are the university officials, but you know maybe this is with the passage of years on my side as well. But you know some of my own direct experience has been with academic officials who are hungry for ways to sort of better attend to these issues. Right? You know, it's no longer. Uh, 1902, right? right. You know, we are in 2018. Right. And so with that passage of time, there's also been a growth on the part of the public awareness of the academy. Right. right. You know, you might say it's having to me too moment of the sorts. And it wants to be better about this. So you yeah. think this is an opportunity to think actually, how could the university function better as a space where there's very strong, robust debate of difficult things, but not subjecting people to kind of hateful messaging that, as you said much earlier, has shown to be detrimental to society and therefore is definitely detrimental to a classroom experience. So it doesn't allow for learning to take place really in the same ways. It doesn't allow for rich learning to take place and it allows for bad learning to take place. You know, do we really want these messages to be part of what the university is complicit in facilitating? Mm -hmm. That's a good point. So that, and this, I think, is a really key point of what students are starting to question when university leaders, who are kind of really hard-pressed, are just citing the First Amendment saying, well, we must allow all speech. 
which is also different from public to private institutions. And I think then students are saying, are you actually teaching us something that is, goes entirely against equality principles and what we're supposed to be learning here? I mean, and it's also, in my view, a bit of a cop-out, right? You know, it, it's this old idea of, well, the public marketplace of ideas. Everybody says whatever they want, and it all gets sorted out, you know, in the end. Well, you know, just like we see in the economic context, the free market, it does not always work so well, right? But, <laughs> we do need some form of regulation if we do not want things to go awry. Right? Well, <laughs> and to ask you, you teach in a law school, so in your law school class, would you let anybody talk about anything they want when it comes into their mind? So if I want to start explaining to you things about the World Cup right now, would you <laughs> let me go on in your law school class? Exactly. Right. We have parameters all the time. I mean, we have parameters just because of time limitation, space limitation. Right. So there are all kinds of ways that all of us are constantly being limited in being able to express ourselves. I know it would be disingenuous to say that at any given moment we could each all spout whatever we want to. And so given that there's this time and space limitation, why is it so hard for so much of the public to comprehend the idea that why don't we shape the space in ways that facilitate best form of conversation, growth, and mutual understanding and learning? Yes, yeah, which, which is what I think we all agree the university is committed to. Can I ask you one more thing about the university? Do you think the university should be a place that models society and so the same rules apply, or should it be a place that's kind of a better version of society where we actually can think more actively about the rules because we probably don't think about, but I don't know, in this country right now with the current jurisprudence, I don't think we're going to have any attempt to think about hate speech regulation in a public space on a sidewalk in a park. Right. Yeah. What we're going to be looking at now, we're hoping, right, is that so many of our, interestingly enough, the private sector is where yes. we see some of the most dynamic sort of diversity programming going on and commitments to to trying to build a better society. You know, even if it's for their own economic bottom line, we, right. you know, we see the private sector more firmly committed these days. And so circling back to your initial question, I got lost in my ideas about the private sector there for a moment. No, let's just go to if the university – could the university be a model for how oh, to think model, about yes. this rather than just this is an even more open marketplace. It's even wider. It's because I actually tend to think what is the university in relation to society? Is it a model for society or is it just a big extension of the sidewalk? Well, the thing is this, why should we abdicate our role as educators? You know, if you could learn what we want to expose you to out in the streets, why pay us all that money to do it? <laughs> it seems to me, you know, I, I think that we have a responsibility to model to our students and to provide for them this space, you know, whether it be four years, you know, or whatever amount of time that they end up staying in the university a space in time in which they get to think more deeply about things and then go out in the world and use that degree as public intellectuals, whatever sphere they are in, whether they're in IT, whether they're engineers, whether they're lawyers, right? We're hoping to equip them right, to actually be public intellectuals because then what is the degree for? Right. I would even say public intellectual in your everyday life to have, exactly. a, to have an informed understanding of our 
country's history of how language works. What you said importantly about those criteria, so they can't be reversed easily. The second criteria you said, if it's a historically oppressed group that's being targeted, that means you can't just say, well, there's all equivalences, and now we have to restrict all sorts of speech. You're saying this means regulating certain types of speech aimed at historically disadvantaged groups in this country, right? And so to maybe conclude before, I want to talk about your book for a minute, but if a campus is in this unfortunate situation of having a controversy (laughs) scheduled, usually they know because we have social media, so you know well in advance someone is coming, they were invited, partly for some people to provoke other people. Who should they bring in to figure out what to do? Or who should they talk to? They usually have people on their own campus. Right. I mean, usually there's a sort of already an interest group ready and able to talk to you about why they find a particular speaker problematic. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's usually a built in set of community members who want to weigh in on the decision, you know, whether it be a racially affiliated group or otherwise. So I I don't think that part is so mysterious. Mm -hmm. I think what can be a little bit more tricky sometimes is whether you can anticipate what the message will be. You know, some speakers that got YouTube channels and so it's not so mysterious, right? But some other people are provocateurs, but you don't necessarily know what they're going to say. And the question is, again, do you censor them before they even get to the campus? Do you disinvite them before they even get to the campus? And so, you know, to be perfectly honest and pragmatic, you know, I think that even with the Mari Matsuda three-step mechanism for trying to make assessments, there will be times where, maybe someone will get in under the radar, right? Meaning, you know, that you haven't adequately been able to anticipate. But I still don't think that that means that the campus has nothing left to do, right? Right. So let's say we admit the provocateur because we weren't able to adequately anticipate, you know, just how foul um, (laughs) it was all going to be once the person arrived. And they say what they say, and they incite quite a bit of disruption, you know, mentally with their words of racial hatred. Then I think that the campus still has something that it could be doing, right? Meaning it could be using its own form of speech to respond, right, to that problematic message, you know. And they have any number of ways of of asserting their own values in response to hate speech on a campus, right? You know, they could cancel classes for a day, you know, depending how significant this harm was, right? You know, they could cancel classes right. for a day, hold a university-wide teaching on racism. They could also do it sort of with their money, right? You know, they could set aside money for scholarship for minority students to right. sort of greater diversify the campus. I mean, there's, yeah. there's, there are things that can be done for the university to speak as well, right. right? If what we've got is this hierarchy where the invited speaker gets to be on the stage, right, be on YouTube and other media, meaning that they get more a prominent distribution of their racist speech that no one can adequately respond to if you want that free market idea to right. go on, right. then you need the university to step up. Right? right and respond and actually assert its own values in response. I think I I really like this idea that the university has a way to also speak back to respond with more speech. And I think mm-hmm. the two parts you named one would be a day of dialogue, teach-ins, more classes, etc. The other piece I think is critically important for the students I've spoken with, who say we need to see something real, which is resources, money, hiring, and if you don't do that and only respond to hate with with symbolic speech, you're not doing the right thing. 
So the university is sort of asked by the students to respond by saying, you should talk back. Yes, absolutely. But you should also demonstrate in a real way you're committed to equality and not just in a symbolic way. So a lot of students have said to me, unless there's funding in these programs, we don't really believe that you're really sort of trying to counter this speech. Then what you have there are students who have been adequately trained, educated, <laughs> using that education to be the public intellectuals that uh, right. I hope they would be. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, they, exactly. They'd be good lawyers and sort of they can use language but also want to change the world in, in concrete ways, right? Exactly. <laughs> I want to just bring us back for one second to our listeners. To You have a book coming out called Multiracials and Civil Rights kind of looking at civil rights through this supposedly, you know, new phenomenon demographically. Of course, it's not new at all of people who have multiracial identities. Can you say one or two sentences about the book? And it's coming out with NYU Press in 2018 in about a couple of weeks. Yes, yes. August 1 is the launch date, and it's already available for pre-order on the NYU Press website. So essentially what I do is I look at the ways in which there's a lot of public discourse about sort of the novelty of mixed-race identity and a questioning as to whether or not our civil rights laws are adequately structured, you know, given their sort of black-white racial history, to attend to the needs of people who are mixed-race. And what I find after going through sort of the records of cases in a number of spheres, you know, education, employment, criminal justice, public accommodations, jury selections, Um, what I find in all those different spheres is that while people may uh, assert a fluid identity, you know, as far as being mixed race, uh, what they describe, unfortunately, still fits a historical binary that's been part of our problematic racial history of whites being juxtaposed against non-whites. Okay. And the reason why I think it's so important to highlight this is because I've been seeing in sort of a disturbing trend to use the existence of mixed race people to abdicate all public responsibility. We have actual Supreme Court justice members saying, why do we need affirmative action? We've got mixed race people. So that means we've sort of solved the race problem. The race problem is sort of slowly going away with mixed race families. So we, you know, from a public perspective, don't have a responsibility to make sure that our public spheres are integrated and fully have open access and participation. And you're saying Um, that the current laws don't reflect the reality or the same things keep on happening, although the justices are saying we don't need to really think about this because it's disappearing on its own. Actually, I'm saying two things. One, that it's a misstatement to say that the laws are not adequate because it's trying to sort of exotify the mixed race body as being sort of exceptionalized out of the traditional (laughs) racial problems of of our society, that in fact they get hit with racism, you know, as do people who don't have a mixed race identity so that our laws are actually can attend to their their needs with regards to racialized persons. And that secondarily, that continuing theme of trying to treat mixed race people as something somewhat exotic and exceptional is being said used rhetorically okay. as a device to abdicate public responsibility, to try to step away from our laws and also to step away from our public policies with regard to race equality and racial justice. Great. Well, I really look forward to the book. I pre-ordered it, so I'll have it very soon in a couple of (laughs) weeks. Thank you very much. And I want to thank you, Tanya, for taking this time to talk 
today about free speech. Really, you provided such a great framework to look at these issues in a kind of more nuanced way. So I really appreciate it. It was a great honor and a joy. Okay, thank you so much. Okay, I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.